Now, God has stretched me, humbled me, and convicted me so much these past eight months, but I've also been unconditionally loved by the staff and the elders. So even though this pandemic messed up all of our plans for what we thought our apprenticeship might look like, I'll be leaving here with a full heart. And so I just want to say thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart on behalf of uh, my family and just for loving us so well. Uh, so this morning, I want to now vi- revisit a familiar passage, one that many of us have probably heard sermons from before. Um, but I suspect that unless you grew up in the historical black church, you probably have not heard the perspective I'm going to show you today. Hopefully by expositing and explaining the text verse by verse, I'll show you that I'm not reading some kind of agenda into the passage and also demonstrate the importance of reading from non-white and non-Western Christian thinkers. And so turn with me now to the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. And instead of uh, reading this passage from the beginning, uh, I'm just going to be reading it uh, and explaining the passage as we go through the message. And so for anyone taking notes, I have three points for this morning's message. The first is neighboring as humanizing the other. Second point is neighboring as loving with vulnerability. And the third point is neighboring as taking up the cross. Starting from verse 25 to 28, let's read this together now to get the context of this parable. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law, and how do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, we initially get the impression that this Jewish lawyer already loves his neighbors because he already knows the answers to Jesus' initial question. But Jesus knows that the lawyer's love for his neighbor is not really love. It's too discriminatory. It's too limited in scope and application. So he challenges the lawyer and the rest of his first century Jewish audience to expand their idea of who their neighbors are and to love the other. But who or what is the other? The other uh, is an individual or a group of people that is perceived by the main group as not belonging often dehumanizing them or seeing them as being beneath the main group. And so Jesus is saying here, loving your neighbor is not just loving and serving the people in your church or your small group or the people who live next to you. Loving your neighbor is far more radical. It's to love the person that we disagree with, the person who looks different from us, and the person who we think are beneath us. So the first point, neighboring as humanizing the other. Verse 29, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? There's a, um, a, con- a conservative New Testament scholar named Leon Morris. 
uh, and he says this in his commentary, and I, and I point this one out because it's from a conservative commentator. He says, the lawyer wanted to justify himself. His basic attitude was still wrong. He had not understood the implication of his words. So he went on to ask, and who is my neighbor? He saw that it meant more than the man next door, but how much more? There were different ideas among the Jews on this point, but they all seemed to be confined to the nation of Israel. The idea of love towards all mankind had not yet reached them. So in other words, Jesus is rebuking his first century Jewish audience of their ethnocentrism or racism because they only considered other Jews as their neighbors. Or to put it another way, Jesus is telling the lawyer, if you have truly inherited eternal life, your love for your neighbor cannot favor or be limited to the people that look just like you or believe the same things you do. You must love people of all nations, especially in their moments of crisis and trauma. And he goes on to explain in verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The man is traumatized. He's in the moment of crisis. And so it's difficult to appreciate the depth of this parable if we overlook the, the details that Jesus intentionally gives us here. He tells us that the Jewish traveler who got jumped by thieves was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And so why does Jesus choose these two cities? Why does he choose these, why does he choose these cities as a setting for which a Samaritan and This isn't by accident. Jesus is intentionally setting up this parable in a way to upset, to shock, and to convict his racist Jewish audience. If you look at a map of Judea, Samaria, and Galilee during the first uh, century, many of you guys have this map in the back of your Bibles. You'll see that Jerusalem, uh, that neither Jerusalem nor Jericho were anywhere near Samaria. And in this map, it's on the bottom uh, of the picture here. And so it's nowhere near Samaria. Judea and Galilee were the, two, the southern and northern provinces, and they were heavily Jewish in ethnicity. And the middle province of Samaria was almost exclusively Samaritan in ethnicity. In fact, the Jews leaving Jerusalem for Galilee would rather take the long way around Samaria to the east along the Jordan River because of their hatred toward the Samaritans. From Jerusalem then, Jericho was the next major Jewish city to resupply before the long journey north to Galilee along the Jordan River. This was a popular path that was most commonly used by Galilean Jews like Jesus when he was growing up on their way home from festivals in Jerusalem. But the Romans and other ethnic groups would have had no problem traveling straight through Samaria because it was shorter. But the Jews saw Samaria as a neighbor, as a neighborhood, as a community to avoid. We're also not told why the Samaritan was on this road between Jerusalem and Jericho, but Samaritans weren't known for traveling from or to Jerusalem. 
about 25 years earlier, the Samaritans had scattered human bones on the Jewish temple grounds, and the Jews are still very mad about that incident. This, they essentially considered this an act of terrorism. And so if they spotted a Samaritan in Jerusalem, the Samaritan could possibly get lynched by an angry Jewish mob for no other reason than his or her race. And plus, why take the long way home from, um, through Jericho when the Samaritan could just travel straight north to get home? So from this, we can deduce that the Samaritan traveling the path from Jerusalem to Jericho is not only a racial minority, he's also a religious minority, or what sociologists call a double minority. And sociologists take special interest in double minorities because they're usually the first people group to get persecuted by oppressive governments. So think of the Jews in Nazi Germany or the Hmong Christians in Myanmar or Chinese Christians in Indonesia. As a result, this Samaritan is taking great personal risk by traveling this path and also loving his Jewish neighbor. Verse 31 and 32, and by chance, it says, now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, the half-dead Jewish man, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Notice that the first uh, person is a Jewish priest, probably someone who serves at the temple in Jerusalem, someone who gets paid to take care of the sick and the poor when they were on duty. The second is a Levite. At this point in Jewish history, Levites didn't do just priestly work. They had other occupations. But Jesus still mentions the fact that this was a Levite of someone who was aware of their priestly heritage. And despite all of that, the Levite and the priest still ignore this victimized, traumatized Jewish man on the road. Why do they do this? Well, there was an Old Testament law that said that if you touched a sick body or a sick person or a dead body, you had to quarantine yourself from your community just in case you caught some disease that could spread to other people. And now, having quarantined ourselves for several months, I think we know how difficult that can be, how inconvenient that is. And so the priest and the Levite didn't want to take the didn't want to risk the possibility of having to quarantine themselves by loving this half-dead Jewish neighbor because they just have too much going on in their lives. So who is the most compassionate and merciful character in the story? It's not the person the first uh, century Jew would have wanted to hear. Verse 33, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, Samaritans were the only people in your, first, uh, in your typical first century uh, Jewish community that would have been despised and hypocritically oppressed, even as the Jews themselves were oppressed by the Romans. There was sort of a racial caste system during this time. The Romans were on top, the Jews were in the middle, and the Samaritans were on the bottom. But why this hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans? 
Well, both sides claim that each of their views of Judaism was right and the other was wrong. And the Jews also accused the Samaritans of having mixed blood with the Gentiles, so the Jews, Jews judged them for that and saw them as an inferior race. And when Jesus told this parable to his first century Jewish audience, it was meant to challenge this racial and ethnocentric stereotype held by the Jews against the Samaritans. And so the main application of this parable is to challenge our willingness to love people of different races, ethnicities, and beliefs, people who we might consider the other. So let's contextualize this to our 21st century American context. The answer to who is your neighbor depends on our social class, our race, and our gender. To all of us, Jesus confronts and challenges our deeply held biases against people we have difficult time loving. Jesus reminds us that loving our neighbors is to humanize the other, our enemy, by showing us their capacity to do good. You know, Reformed theologians call this a doctrine of common grace. We don't talk about this enough. So when the lawyer asks the question, who is your neighbor? It's not just the members of your community groups or someone from your church or someone who lives next door to you. It's far more radical than that. Your neighbor is the undocumented immigrant who goes out of her way to make sure the job that she was hired to do is the best you've ever seen because that's the only way she can provide for her kids. Your neighbor is the thousands of readers of Breitbart who donated almost $10,000 to my friend from Uganda to pay for his wife's medical fees. Your neighbor is the young black man wearing a hoodie walking home late at night with a box of medicine for his sick aunt. Your neighbor is your local police officer who hates racism in his department and who hates the racism in his community and is trying his best to do the right thing in a hostile climate. Your neighbor is the LGBTQ person across the street who mows your lawn for you because you're too sick to mow it yourself. Your neighbor is the Republican Party official who invites Muslim refugees over to thank, for his family Thanksgiving dinner. Your neighbor is the Black Lives Matter activist who peacefully marches in the evening and wakes up early in the morning to clean the streets. Notice how this parable isn't, a, isn't just called the parable of the good neighbor or the parable of the nice person. It's the parable of the good other. And in our context, it's the parable of the good Republican, the parable of the good Democrat, the parable of the good Mexican, the, the parable of the good Chinese American, the parable of the good police officer, the parable of the good activist. Are we uncomfortable yet? This parable is a command to stop demonizing and dehumanizing the other. It's a command to love our neighbors as we would want to be loved. Again, Jesus is, is essentially saying to us, because we have inherited eternal life, our love for our neighbor cannot favor or be limited to people that look just like us or believe the same things we do. 
Second point, neighboring as loving with vulnerability. But, as a, but, at, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Consider again this first century Jewish context. A denarii is a day's worth of wages. And I did the math, and that's about $583 for the average household in Loudoun County. And so two denarii would be about $1,166 in the average household income of Christ Central's members. And that's the amount that we would have essentially paid up front with more cost accrued for your half-dead oppressor. Why does Jesus choose a Samaritan as the generous hero of the story? I mean, think about it. Why didn't he choose the good Egyptian or the good Babylonian or the good Roman? I mean, if Jesus wanted political and economic prosperity, political peace and economic prosperity for the first century Jews, then the good Roman would have made most sense. He would have said, stop hating the Romans. They're your neighbors. Love them, respect them, be nice to them, and you'll be rich, and you'll live in peace. But he doesn't do this. I mean, again, think about it. He doesn't choose an ethnic group that oppressed the Jews in the past or an ethnic group that is more powerful than the Jews as a parable's hero. He chooses the one ethnic group that, that was even considered beneath the Jews in their own eyes. If the parable was the parable of the good Roman or the good Egyptian or the good Babylonian, then the Jewish audience would have responded one of two ways. Well, they would have said, number one, well, that's easy for them to do because they're rich and they're privileged and they're powerful. They can take time off their busy schedules to, to give money and take care of people like this. Or they would have said, well, they kind of owe us reparations anyway because they enslaved and, and invaded us at one point. But with the Samaritans, the Jews can't dismiss this almost random act of love as coming from a position of power or privilege. They have to admit that it's hard for the Samaritans to love the Jews. As minorities among the people of Jewish heritage, the Samaritans are already fewer in number than the Jews. On top of that, a Samaritan in Judea would have been even more rare as it was considered enemy territory. It's not convenient for a Samaritan to love a Jew in a predominantly Jewish town. In fact, a Samaritan, again, could be beat up or lynched by a Jewish mob if he was misunderstood by the other Jewish travelers for hauling around a half-dead Jewish man on his animal. I mean, to put it another way, the Samaritan's ability to love his Jewish neighbor was dependent upon the kindness and permission of the Jews themselves. He couldn't even love his half-dead Jewish neighbor apart from the permission given to him by his Jewish neighbors. And so the 21st century equivalent of this would, have, would be a young black Muslim man, racial and religious minority, 
driving through a white suburban neighborhood and finding a half-dead white man on the side of the road. He then loads him on his trunk with the door, uh, you know, the trunk door half open because his car was full because he's traveling through the area. He's not from the area. And he's driving as quick as he can to the nearest hospital. But let's be real. If you're a black male and you're a Muslim, you have to be out of your mind to do such a merciful deed. Imagine the thousand scenarios that could potentially unfold if a white neighbor misunderstood the situation. Or if the police pulled him over to ask questions. He, was, he has to depend on the mercy and kindness of other white people and hope that they don't falsely accuse him of having beaten up the white man that's in his trunk. And this is what I mean when I say neighboring as loving with vulnerability. We refer to Jesus' human birth as the incarnation. And the incarnation shows us that as an infant, Jesus was fully dependent on the kindness and love of Joseph, Mary, and other people, and other strangers to survive. The incarnation shows us that Jesus had to depend on the love of others in order to love others later on. His incarnational love has a posture of vulnerability, weakness, and dependence. When was the last time our love for our neighbors was so vulnerable? And so to truly love our neighbor then is to follow Jesus in his incarnational love. Love that cannot be lived out without depending on the recipients for their, uh, for their kindness first. This is how we avoid loving our neighbor in a patronizing manner. And this is really important for us as people of upper middle class backgrounds. Patronizing love has a posture of power, privilege, and convenience. Patronizing love says, I love because I can. But to truly love our neighbor is to say, I love because you have given me the privilege to love you. So if you're a conservative, it's to say to the progressive, you are better than I. Will you give me the privilege of serving you? If you're a progressive, it's to say to the conservative, you are better than I. Will you give me the privilege of serving you? Now, as, Phil, as Paul says in Philippians 2, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. This is the kind of neighboring love Jesus' incarnation teaches us. And consider this too. Jesus doesn't allow the first century Jew to be colorblind or ignorant of the race and ethnicity of their neighbors. The Jews might have thought back then, well, of course I love everybody. Of course I love my neighbors equally, regardless of race. I don't see race or color in my neighbors. Their confidence was clearly shown by the lawyer's attempt to justify himself in front of the Jewish crowd, that he loves all of his neighbors. But Jesus knew that if the Samaritans heard them saying this, they would have laughed at such a claim because as minorities, they knew that the Jews were racist. From this, we see that being colorblind isn't the goal. Rather, the goal is to recognize different ethnicities and races and pursue justice or shalom or cosmic peace. 
where its attainment is always based on the satisfaction of the marginalized. In other words, because we have inherited eternal life, our love for our neighbors cannot favor or be limited to people that look just like us or believe the same things that we do. And our love for our neighbors cannot come from a position of power, privilege, or convenience. Our love for our neighbor must be incarnational. Final point, neighboring as taking up the cross. Verse 36, which of these three, Jesus asked, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The final confirmation of the lawyer's racism is actually found in verse 37. When Jesus asked who proved to be the neighbor, the lawyer can't even admit that the hero of the story is a Samaritan. He just says the one who showed him mercy. I hope I've made it clear that this parable is actually far more difficult to live out than it's typically explained by Western theologians. Jesus expands our, our understanding of neighbor to include the other. This isn't as simple as writing a check to someone in need or making food for a sick friend or church member. Instead, because we have inherited eternal life, our love for our neighbor cannot, again, come from a position of power, privilege, and convenience. And our love for our neighbor requires us to take up our cross and die with Jesus on the cross as we seek to love our, 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 the other. This parable demands of us death, death to ourselves, death to our sense of self-respect, death to our privileges, death to our secular ideologies and political allegiances, and death to our racist beliefs. It requires us to carry our crosses and follow our Savior in his death as he sought to love his neighbors. And it's only in following Jesus in this manner of death will we share in his resurrection life. And this is where we get the strength then to live out this incredibly difficult parable. We look to the true and better Samaritan who moved from his comfortable house, his throne in heaven, to the slums of a sinful and broken earth. As a true and better Samaritan, his comfortable, uh, his, he stepped down from his position of power and privilege and came to earth dependent on the kindness of his adopted parents and his human neighbors so that he can love his neighbors one day. As a true and better Samaritan, Jesus moved uh, away from his perfectly heavenly neighbors, his glorified neighbors, to become neighbors with his enemies, with people who wanted to kill him. As a true and better Samaritan, Jesus humanized us by dying for our sins on the cross while we were still considered the other to God because of our sins. Jesus made it possible for us to be forgiven for all the times that we failed to humanize the other and love our neighbors properly. And that's the true and better Samaritan. Jesus restores in us our humanity, our true humanity, and says, I have paid for your recovery with my life. You are now healed from your brokenness and you're forgiven of your sin, now you go and do likewise. So what does it mean then 
to go and do likewise, as Jesus has done for us? Well, it might mean fighting the temptation to participate in white flight, or moving out of our neighborhood because, of, because more black and brown people are moving in. It might mean moving closer to the city rather than deeper into the suburbs if we can't afford housing. It might mean staying put where you are in your current neighborhood and getting involved in your children's school systems by speaking up not just for what's good for your children, but for people of other races and socioeconomic class and backgrounds. It might, mean affording, afford, uh, it might mean supporting affordable housing projects in your community to continue the, the dream of racial integration in our country. It might mean spending your free time, not playing video games or vegging out on Netflix, but volunteering your, uh, your time tutoring or coaching students at Title I or low-income schools or nonprofits like Little Lights. It might mean donating money to churches and nonprofits, doing anti-racist work in our country. I know many of us are tired. And I know a longer to-do list is probably not what some of us want to hear today. But in the racial and, so and social caste system of America, most of us listening today are near the top. And if the news and recent protests have shown us anything, is that our black neighbors have it far worse than us. And the church has been given a unique opportunity to live out the gospel in solidarity with marginalized groups in our society today. May we never find ourselves in the shoes of the Jewish priest or the Levite who are too inconvenienced to love our neighbors in their time of need, crisis or trauma, because it's we don't want to quarantine ourselves again because of our first world problems. But just as Christ was a good Samaritan to us and inconvenienced himself to us, let us go and do likewise. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this morning. We thank you for your word and we thank you that you sent your son out of his position of comfort, power, and privilege and convenience to incarnate himself among us, people who are so undeserving, people who are truly the other in your eyes because of our sins. And we thank you that through your son and his death on the cross that we now are restored, are healed, and truly humanized so that we have the honor and privilege of following your son in his footsteps, of loving our neighbors and loving the other with vulnerability. So we pray for your spirit to empower us, to convict us, to help us to see that even in the midst of our difficulties right now during this quarantine, that there are people who have it far, far worse. Entire communities who are in crisis and collectively traumatized that we are called to love as a church. Help us to rise to the occasion so that Christ may be magnified through not just our words, but through our deeds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Moses. Hey, let's rise together.